0: All right, welcome to the CXM experience. You know, I'm excited today. I'm Grad Kahn, CXO at Sprinkler, and I am joined by someone who's become a really good friend of mine named Julio Silva. Now, Julio and I actually met at a dinner in San Francisco when he was the head of consumer analytics at Google, and he was doing some incredibly cool things around micro-advertising and regional Localization, and I've actually used a lot of his work uh, that he was doing at Google with Sprinkler, uh, with many, many other customers. And um, he's very generous with his time and sharing his insights. Uh, since then, and more recently, he's now sort of a globe-trotting uh, consultant working with a variety of CPG firms around the world. Um, he's originally from Ecuador, sort of based on the west coast of the U.S., but um, right now is actually speaking to us from Ecuador. So. Julio, welcome!
1: Thank you so much for having me, Grad.
0: And what's Ecuador like today? Is uh, is it is it a warm, cold, medium?
1: It's it's beautiful, like beach weather, almost uh, eighty five degrees. A lot of okay. sun, perfect right. for catching some waves. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, we'll try to make this quick then because I <laughs> so you can get out. Uh, wow, that's awesome, yeah, Ecuador is a beautiful, beautiful country uh so uh so I just wanted to sort of start with you know someone like yourself, you know, I would consider you one of the more innovative marketers in the world, and one thing that I think is really uh, interesting about your career is what you've done is you've been able to focus on new the new connected reality, and you're focused on trying to make sure that you know you're able to work with people in a way that's relevant to the world that they live in today. And very much a modern channels kind of person, very much a modern communications type of person. And uh, what I love about what you're doing is you've got this incredible enthusiasm for it. You're always pushing the envelope and you're never really satisfied. And we'll kind of get to where you're going next in, in a few minutes what I'd love to do is just understand how that all happened. So, you know, a lot of the people who listen to the CXM experience, are marketers, um, always kind of curious and interested in terms of how their peers have sort of managed their careers. So talk to me a little bit, about maybe how you got started, what created the worldview that you have today, and what were the kind of steps that sort of led you to where you are at this moment? I know you've got lots of career ahead of you, but what are the steps that led you to this moment? Um, And just kind of give us that story.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So my my story squared is, is quite not traditional I have to say but but my beginnings were sort of traditional uh, right after college I had the chance of doing an internship in the U.S. Department of Commerce in, in Washington, D.C., and I was doing traditional desk research. I was, you know, helping with surveys, analyzing a huge offline research, you know, the traditional uh, market research um, analysis that has been done for, for several decades. But in 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 that type of programs, I got first exposed to a syndicated consumer research and I was uh, introduced to a company called Euromonitor from London. They're very big in, in consumer research. And I was Trying to replicate some of the research that I was conducting at the Department of Commerce, but to do it with with corporations, and um, I did that for close to one year. Uh, most of my my projects and my, and my research uh, initiatives were done in South America. So it was another good excuse to go back home. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was flying back and forth. And then eventually an Indian-based company uh, reached out to me saying, hey, you know, we've been um, searching this type of research that your monitor sells. And we're trying to do something with this thing called social media. And I think that, mm. you know, it, it might be something interesting. The company is called it's called Genpact. It's a Fortune 100 firm. And I was uh, recruited as a business development individual trying to uh, use the social data to make some sense of, of 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 consumer analytics and research, early early days. One of my first clients was Bank so of what, America. So what year
0: would this be? I'm, I'm talking how, what, about 2000 how
1: 2009,
0: 2010. Oh, early. Yeah, it yeah. was very early. Yeah. Actually, very early.
1: a, a yeah. little bit after when Sprinkler was founded. So it was like 2010, 2010, 2010 yeah. 2009, wow. so so when, one of my prospects was, was Bank of America, and Bank of America oh. was, a, was a company that was within my portfolio of, of accounts. And long story short, the, the, the company was in the middle of the Occupy Wall Street crisis, you know, the housing, the 1% oh, yeah. we yeah. hate the banks. And when I was trying to make this pitch, eventually, you know, they invited me to Charlotte. I was in Charlotte, and when I was invited to, to have a, a final session, I thought that the deal was going to move forward. They say, hey, Julio, we will not like to, you know, hire your company, but we'd we'll like to hire you. Would you like right. to come on and work with us as a, as a contractor, as a consultant? And that was in 2011. And that's how it started. I remember it was just me, um, you know, the need to actually find uh, some sort of uh, sense in terms of what were people saying or, uh, you know, commenting about the bank and their marketing initiatives around this like huge PR crisis. And hey, here's a password to a social listening, you know, platform and technology. And that was it. That was my beginning. Uh, I started in crisis mode and doing reports presenting that directly to the board it was literally uh, you know a fast track uh, exposure to something very very important and i started to get a sense of hey the traditional way of doing research can be enhanced with this like new, um, unsolicited and unstructured way of of capturing consumer consumer data, and and then eventually that move into setting up a social listening practice at at Merrill and Bank of America for using consumer research most broadly. Uh, and I had the chance. I was five years at the bank, and I had the chance of of, ta- of tapping into you know uh, traditional lending, you know high net worth banking, uh, investment banking, you know small business banking, and everything cool. in between. So it was great, you know, challenges like, hey, I would like to launch a, a credit card for college kids. How should I do it? It was the early questions that they needed to have some answers and social media was a good way to in such answers. So I was there for five years. Uh, they move it, then I moved into Hilton. I was uh, the head of social consumer research there and I was working on some uh, very interesting models that can use consumer mentions and forms to measure the connection with online booking. And for me, that was like an aha moment because the first part of my career Career was like, okay, let's just measure and just try to understand the voice of the consumer. The second part was a connection to something more tangible which was like money, you know, online booking, revenue. Uh, and that, that showed me that, hey, there's a way of using models and using data science in order to connect the two universes. Uh, I was there for one year and then actually I went back to Bank of America for, for another year and then, and then I started having other roles in, in Disney. I worked at Cisco um, doing a lot of consumer research and analytics. I was, you know, uh, my, my practice became more complex. Uh, I was never, I never played in the same vertical twice so I had the chance of going mm, from banking, nice. the hospitality, then I moved to, to Hollywood and then uh, my, my next role after that was was, the I was um Then I, I started leading the entire team and I was responsible of um, setting up a listening practice and be able to mine, in the case of the consumer research, in order to capture talent. And that is literally, that was it in 2015, and that was when i was exposed to sprinter for the first first time as a as a user i remember that was the day that i was given the 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 keys to the kingdom to actually understand <laughs> how how the technology works and it was a, it was a very interesting suddenly uh, everything dimension. was different
0: right Yeah, you know, everything like, was wow. easier
1: actually easier
0: yeah
1: okay, I, I think that is the word and then after my, i was in, in in deloitte there for for two years and then i was I was approached by Google and eventually um, started working on setting up their practice. And guess what? Sprinklr was the, the weapon of choice. And, and it was very interesting to me to see how the tool has been evolving throughout the years and that it become from a tool to a platform to a consulting arm to you know a great partner to have within you know corporate endeavors. And 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 that said, you know, in Google, I've been literally converging all the analytics and all the expertise for market research. Um, the unsolicited information from consumers, silent surveys, and then getting into more of a proactive and predictive analytics. So just trying to be ahead of the curve, understanding, you know, trends, understanding the, the voice of the consumer, um, how it's structured when an individual speaks or talks about a topic, there's a halo effect. You know, there's a, a lot of elements that are left behind your, your your DNA, your trail within social and digital. And, you know, it's publicly available information. And if you have the ability and the tools to mine that information, you can start building archetypes and eventually start connecting that with, with offline research and, you know, p and that's when the conversation gets important. So I think that throughout the years, the challenge has been moving into more of a gimmick or something that is a nice to have, to a more of a strategic and very, you know, business oriented, uh, function.
0: That's right. Yeah. I think to me, what's happening today is that the smart businesses are now using modern channels as a way of driving growth. You know, it's a, it's a growth and revenue motion, not a, I think there was a community management motion in the early days of let's listen and talk and exchange, you know, Hey, that's nice to hear and that kind of stuff. But I don't think it's about community management anymore. There's an element of that, but really it's all about, you know, how do I get to people where they are?
1: Absolutely. I really think that they're like Lego blocks, one on top of each other, and there's a greater goal, which is like build a brand or eventually, you know, depending on the nature of your organization, have revenue, you'll make money. And and in order to do that, you need to get to where the, the actual pockets of, of value are, which are within the consumers. And uh, community management is just a, an element, a touch point, an entry point, but the, the picture is, is way more complex than that.
0: Well, and I think that the, what I've seen happen over many years, I'm a real student of advertising and marketing history, is that when something new comes out, it's usually derided. You know, it's like, ah, radio, what the hell is that guy ever going to be good for? You know, you can't see <laughs> anything. You can't send in a coupon, right? And then TV came out and it was going to be a fad, literally. People said, that's going to be a fad in the early days of the internet, I remember showing my dad the internet and he had, he'd been one of the people that believed in TV when it came out showed him the internet. And he's like, you know, that's just a fad. That's going to be come and gone before you know it. And <laughs> it's like, all right. And it's just every single new thing has got this sort of, this fad is, ta- you know, sort of tapped on. And I'm sure somebody, some point in time said, Hey, I've got this great idea. I can take this chisel and I can make these marks in this stone tablet and everyone's like, ah, stone tablets, that's just a fad. You know, writing. <laughs> In fact, they're actually, uh, uh, all joking aside, there are some pretty interesting writings from, I think it was, I might have been Socrates, uh, on the um, dangers of writing. Really? Uh, because at the time, it was all oral oral history and oral tradition, oral education, And they were beginning to write things down and record them, and it was like that's a terrible idea. We shouldn't be writing anything down. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: so every every single thing has got some critic standing on the side going, "That's never going to work." You know, writing books,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and that's probably something very connected to human nature and how sometimes we're we're losing, you know, the, the humble factor and just trying to, hey, everything is. It's been, it's been developed and everything has been invented, but things are changing. You know, if I compare how this industry was in you know, 2009, 2010, when I started to what we have right now, the, the potential of actually integrating this into you know, board level decisions is something that if I talked to my younger self, it would have been like, you're nuts, it's impossible. But right now, it's, it's something right. very tangible.
0: Well, I think one of the things about the industry that's been interesting is that it, it started off from the beginning with the one-to-one piece. And I think what was always exciting about it from day one for all of us was, hey, I can actually talk to someone and know a little bit about them. I don't know everything, but I know kind of their interests, or I've got an ability to understand interests and sort of identity. But I think where a lot of the criticism came in or the poo-pooing came in was, well, there's no mass there, yeah. right? You know, you know, So you talk to 50 people. Who, I mean, I'm trying to sell 5 million chocolate bars or whatever. And... um, What's changed, I think, over the last you know, decade is that the mass is there now. You know, you've got billions of people, literally, uh, on these platforms. And uh, I think what Sprinklr has done is enabled you to suck in the whole mass and grab all those conversations, and then with the AI, be able to get down to the one-to-one level and be able to address them in a personalized way or semi-personalized way. Uh, but that was not obvious, I think, 10 years ago that that would go that way.
1: Yeah, because it was going to be a fad. It just like you it mentioned, fat, right? <laughs> it was a yeah. fad. Right. But, but, and to be honest, I really think everything also relies in the context because what you're mentioning, I think is a half side of the, of the spectrum, the other side other half of the spectrum, it's to understand if you're going to handpick or cultivate, you know, right now, the word influencer is is very big and very predominant. But if you don't have the right context in order to identify the potential, you know, factor that that individual might have, not only in the sheer number of followers or like high level metrics. But the way that that individual is connected to the values or the interests of the audience that we're trying to tap into, then you might be, you know, pulling your, your, your investment in the wrong influencer. You're a brand and trying to do some influencer program. So it's, it, you need to do both, be able to identify your effective partnerships in order to understand the audience interest towards that particular individual, and at the same time, understanding how the masses and how, you know, the big public can be reached in this more of a one-on-one type of way.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So as you're, as you're sort of looking back on your career to date, and now you're still, you're, you're at, a, I think, probably early midpoint in your career, what would you, if you were going to coach yourself up a little bit, say you could go and you know, get a, you know, I'll let you borrow my DeLorean and you can <laughs> zip back 10 years, okay? I think if you went back 10 years, you'd probably, here's my guess, as uh, you're going you're gonna, to, well, first of all, you'll probably have a pretty fun time driving the car. Okay. So uh, uh, it's a pretty fun thing. So, but eventually you'll run out of gas, right? So you'll stop. Okay. And then you're, um, then you walk out and you meet yourself, you meet your 10, year younger self. Uh, I think probably you'd say, dude, you're killing it. So keep going. Like, that's probably a general, but you probably give yourself some advice. You're like, Hey, you know, try this earlier or do this differently or, or whatever. What advice would you give yourself?
1: Yeah, great, great, great um, scenario to actually put, put my mind around. I really think that one of the most important you know, recommendations or advices I'll give to my, my younger self in, in this trip will be trust yourself. Uh, make sure that you understand that the, the area that you're working on is not a fad. It's going to be very important moving forward. Start breaking silos integrated data sources, make sure Mm, that your voice mm. is heard and that you're not seen as a gimmick. Social media is not only community management. Social media is not just posting a random tweet. Social media is insights, it's power, it's the ability to identify trends before it happens. This is a very efficient and very effective way of understanding masses. So eventually, you can be shaping your corporation. So pretty much, trust trust your instinct, keep doing what you're doing, and break the silos. That, I think that that's probably one of the you know most uh, important advice that I'll take.
0: That's very cool. Okay, now let's give more advice. But now we're gonna give it to someone that is that you don't know necessarily. It's a, a new a uh, young student graduating from business school today. Uh, that student comes to you and says, "Mr. Silva, I really respect what you've been doing. I've been following it. I listened to the this amazing podcast on the (laughs) CXM experience the other day. I really wanted to know more. Um, What advice would you give to someone who's just entering the industry right now? How would you direct them or give them guidance on where to go next?
1: I really think that the, the most important thing will be to identify what was your area of focus. Would you like to be on the strategic side? Would you like to be in the commercial side? I really think having those foundations are critical. But then at the end of the day, the, the, the basic recommendations, whether you pick, you know, the one or the other will be to try to understand the potential of, of consumer research. Try to get yourself mm-hmm. into the weeds of understanding audiences, be an observant, be able to be humble and change uh, or don't actually know be be um, be a daredevil be actually something someone that can go and try to break the status quo if you're in a meeting believe me i've been in so many meetings in which you know an executive or even a board member has a very you know heavy position towards the subject Always try to question that if data is not backing up that decision. If it's hunch driven, at least you need to have some backup. So try to always be that voice of reason and don't be afraid of voicing out that, you know, there's a lot of unsolicited consumer information that we can go and tap in order to A, pick our strategy or B, you know, weight our hypotheses.
0: Interesting. Love that. Okay, cool. All right. So you, you've been on this journey. You're still on the journey. Uh, what's next? What's your... What what kind of what's what are you cooking up in the kitchen right now? And, and I know I know some of the recipes are secret, so I mean, I mean, some maybe not quite you know not really sure they're going to turn out. But like, what what can you share with us? And and what can you kind of give us some uh, insight into?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I really think that uh, in the future, making sure that uh, the proper ROI models or the the actual attempts to measure the effectiveness of this type of research will be paramount. So um I'm right now working with in several projects around the world to to measure effectiveness of even visual analytics. So right now it's not only text, it's not only the voice. It's like, you know, the way that people are expressing themselves. We're not long longer just posting and writing we're putting images. there's a lot of multimedia and and mm. and sometimes the wording and the way that we express ourselves in digital and social spaces is not connected to a text it's connected to a visual. So what i'm trying to do is like integrate the listening, the traditional listening. Um, that has been fueled my research for the past decade all the way to leveraging visual analytics. So that's one. Number two, I really think that the integration of, of trends, you know, uh, that are happening in, in, in search and social and also the way that, you know, e-commerce and web are happening or the CRM, um, you know, performance of, of, of you know, you're in a CPG, that's something that is extremely important. So if you're measuring and integrating that, I think that is that is a, something that is going to happen in the future. And, and last but not least, I really think that consumer research and this type of of understanding of audiences is going to be the the catalyst for brand development and brand building you know some of the strategies and ideas that are behind major global corporations will be you know uh, based on the understanding of the consumer using social and digital data so i really think that that the that the area will will bloom tremendously if we fast forward um, you know we will go into the and go go uh, you know to the future <laughs> forward or, time it goes forward goes time. both ways actually you're <laughs> right goes both ways <laughs> if we if we go that that way we will be able to see that that you know probably um the 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 understanding of the consumers and and the usage of this information for very high level strategic decisions will be a must
0: yeah very interesting. you know one of the things that I've been sort of watching is the evolution of how the voice in um modern channels is being expressed and uh, uh, I'd say that the one one very good example and I think they've done an awesome job, would be Wendy's. I'm sure you're familiar with the Wendy's. Yeah. You know. And um, I think they've done a nice job of getting a sort of a bit of a snappy, fairly interesting voice uh, that, you, that you want to read. Uh, but what's interesting about that voice is it's a generic brand voice. It's, a, it's not attached to an individual. Then there are other approaches, and L'Oreal and others are kind of going in this direction, where you're talking to a human being Inside the company,
1: yeah. So sometimes those those accounts are very very human. The humanization of of, of yeah. a, you know is not a corporate it feels like Zappos account. is
0: like that. Like Zappos, when people talk about how much they love Zappos, and everybody does. Cl- I, mean, I mean, I'm generalizing here, obviously. So I'm always a little bit nervous when I do that. But classically, they're usually gushing about a an interaction they had with an individual at Zappos. Right, So I called and, you know, the, this person helped me, took the return, made it really easy. I was able to get the pair that I wanted. Like, But they often refer to the human being behind it. And it's, um, it's almost like, I think, I'm not sure, I, I'm not enunciating this very clearly right now. But let me, I want to bounce it off you because you, you've got the kind of mind that I think will be an interesting one to bounce this off of. It feels like there was this debate in the 1980s on uh, House of Brands. Versus branded house, right? So Procter and Gamble or Nabisco would be an example of a house of brands. You know, most people are aware of Tide and Cheer. Not everybody knows they're both made by the same company. And uh, whereas a branded house would be something where, say, Johnson and Johnson is very is the brand, and then there's sort of sub products underneath that. And so I I tend to think of Johnson and Johnson as the brand, and that's the branded house. And I feel like there's a similar, um, and I don't, and no one really. There was a, I don't know why it was a debate, but it just kind of ended up really kind of fizzling out because it didn't really matter. Sometimes both work, <laughs> mm-hmm. but then where, where we're going now is like, I think, is it, is a generic voice of the brand or is it the personal voice of a human inside the company and which of those approaches work better? Cause I, and I, I have a point of view on this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Cause I'm sure you've seen many iterations on this
1: i am I'm, I'm really inclined towards the humanization of it, and the hey, let's be genuine, this is not a corporate robot, or like you know the company does not have a soul the The is made up of you know talent, and that talent is expressed in this channel by an individual you know taking charge of the communication, therefore the way that he's communicating needs to be personable, needs to be relatable, needs to be human. So I really think that is very extremely powerful. Like it's it's very, in some cases it can be humorous. It can be very, you know, a very, uh, you know, fantasy or like very real and genuine. And I think that probably can ease in some cases, the burden because a lot of these channels are exposed to a lot of a lot of hate or a lot of, you know, pressure. So making sure that you're addressing the situation not with a, you know, a copy paste corporate message, uh, putting in a notion is not the way to go. It's actually the opposite is trying to be understanding, empathetic, be able to uh, connect that human component of, hey, we're representative of the firm. We're trying to, you know, inform, help or like direct you in the right way and just be approachable. That is that is probably the way to go.
0: Yeah, I agree with you with a caveat. And I I think the caveat is the amount of training required to make sure that that happens effectively across the entire employee base. I mean, I don't think that training exists right now, or I don't know if anyone really knows how to do it. Like, maybe the best example in terms of this dichotomy that Liz, because what I see is I see a lot of companies that have one approach physically and then a different approach digitally. And, um, my, I mean, I think everybody knows that I'm, I don't know if I'm the world's biggest Disney fanatic, but I've never met anyone else who spent an entire year in the park. So I'm, <laughs> I'm up there. Okay. I'm in the, I'm in the top 1% of the top 1% of Disney fanatics. And, and I, I am inspired and, um, and given joy by the Disney brand every single day. So, uh, I'm a huge fan. And what's interesting about Disney is I feel like they figured CXM out in 1955, like people came running around talking about CXM right now and experience, experience, experience. Like Disney had experience, nailed, nailed, like in the fifties. <laughs> it's a long time ago, and they understood the value of immersion. They under they used to have their own little newspaper in Disneyland. They had a Disneyland newspaper. They had you know everyone was a guest, and the in the in the, in the employees were cast members, and they 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 understood this concept long time ago. And it took us amazing actually how long it took. The rest of everybody else to sort of copy and sort of follow their footsteps. But what's interesting is that Disney has figured out how to train their physical employees extraordinarily. uh, One thing I would do is I I remember, like I said, I went to the park every day for almost a year and I would just sit and watch. It was just amazing just to watch things. And you'd see very infrequently, but people would occasionally drop some litter on the ground. And it wasn't like left there for the litter person to pick up. Anybody who happened to be walking by, you know, it could be a senior management person who's wearing a suit, or it could be, um, not the characters I don't think did this because they couldn't really see it, but it could be <laughs> like anyone who was like a human, like, like yeah. not so much Winnie the Pooh, right? But, but all the humans walking around, anybody who saw that piece of garbage and was like the, essentially the first one that saw it would pick it up and put it in the garbage can. And I thought, wow, that is, that is a really great culture. It's like everybody's responsibility to make sure the park is delightful. But what's interesting is that, that that training and whatever they do, I've never unfortunately worked at Disney, although it was another one of my, Disney and Ogilvy and May, they're the two places I wanted to work in my life, never worked at either one of them. Um, but the, the, the thing that's interesting is, it's I think a lot more difficult to transfer that training that's worked so well physically to the digital world. Because in the digital world, the, the Disney brand is not individuals. Got it. And, and I, and I'm not sure I've got a ton of great examples of the, the what you're talking about and what I'm agreeing with. Uh, and I'm curious as your thoughts on what's going to be required to like get people trained in the digital realm to interact in the digital realm, to have the same impact that we're, we've gotten pretty good at in the physical realm.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I really think that it relies on the environment in which you're operating. Your your example of Disney is probably something that was embedded in the culture, but, but was finesse and was uh, um, you know executed properly because of exposure. You know that there were like definitely uh, a lot of individuals seeing this type of dynamics and seeing the the, the search the, the the disruption to the ecosystem that you know a littering paper can do. Now that requires a lot of observation, a lot of a lot of in- engagement in the ecosystem. Now to the digital online world, there's a, a very interesting um, new field of study which is nanography. You know that. Not- graphic analysis of online communities. So in order for me to go and engage as an individual the proper way, I need to observe. I need to understand because Mm. the way that individuals are behaving in digital and online sometimes can be a representation of the dynamics of the platform. So You might have an attitude towards the way that you communicate in LinkedIn. You might have an attitude or dynamic the way that you communicate via Twitter, Instagram. And also you have different features and different, um, you know, strong suits from each of the platforms that can leverage your, your persona. So you need to be, as a brand, you need to be able to identify, A, you know, how is the landscape and what is the type of behavior or like even linguistic approach that you should take. So there's a lot of science behind that in order to do a proper observation Will require a dissection of the entire consumer behavior within the outlet, right. and then you know try to connect that those elements, the strong suits of the platform, with your brand attributes and values, and the things that you do offline to have a real genuine experience. Because this is three hundred and sixty. It's not that I am if I'm exposed to the Sappos experience, if I'm exposed to the Disney experience or the Nike experience, I'm expecting the same in in all the a- angles of my exposure to the brand.
0: Right, 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 right. That's why that's really. That's a really com- compelling comment. You're right. The training has to include an understanding of the language and the gestalt of that team. When I'm talking to a, a developer, I'm going to have a very different conversation and need to than if I'm talking to someone who's a say, gamer.
1: You oh. have to, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, this was this was super fun and super cool, and I really appreciate uh, your time and your energy on this. Uh, if people want to follow you or stay connected to you, do you what's your preferred platform of choice. You know, do you have a Twitter handle? What's the best way for people to stay in touch?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Like I have a Twitter, um my handle is Julio underscore E underscore Silva and you can add me up there. Um, I'm not that active that much, but I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of a lurker. I, I, I engage with a lot of brands and study them, but I'm more active on LinkedIn. So you can find me like, you know, just put Julio Silva and you'll be able to see my, my, my face and my link there. And I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, always welcome to receive requests for, for connections and also for advice or like, you know, career advice as well, or corporate advice, more than happy to, to engage.
0: That's awesome. Well, Julio, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. I want to thank Julio Silva, our guest. And uh, we're talking about the future of communications and the future of where where we're all heading. And uh, you can bet that Julio will be there. So uh, I'm going to sign off for now. Uh, for the CXM experience, I'm Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler. And I'll see you next time.